HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And this time of year, it's picnic time, it's grill time, but any time of year is a time of year for a hamburger. I mean, you can probably think of at least 10 popular American dishes that could be listed as America's favorites, but there's no denying that the absolute number one favorite American food for over a century, and not just the fast food, is the hamburger. You don't have to believe me. There are surveys that back all this up. And hey, even those who choose not to eat meat have worked hard at perfecting a vegan burger. So we all know that burgers are are loved and eaten by just about everybody. And we all know the companies that have evolved that have made their fortunes from the hamburger. But that was another show. The varieties of hamburgers are as numerous as the many stories about its history. We aim to clear the air on that. We have with us today the burger scholar himself, George Motes, who has spent his career celebrating the hamburger's history, not just eating and cooking burgers, but researching, writing, and filming them. George Motes is a well-traveled Emmy Award-winning freelance filmmaker author, and photographer. He's also been called the foremost authority on hamburgers by the New York Times and America's Biggest Burger Name by Eater LA. In the spring of 2004, Motes completed Hamburger America, his second documentary film, which he shot, produced, edited, and directed. The film was nominated in 2006 for a James Beard Award. Yes, I'm going somewhere with this. And in 2011, it was recognized by the U.S. National Archives as integral part of American food history. Quite, quite an achievement. The film's success led to a state-by-state guide to hamburgers, also titled Hamburger America. Hamburger America, a state-by-state guide to great burger joints. And in 2016, Abrams Books released his first cookbook, The Great American Burger Book, 
which was just re-released in May. George can be seen on his new show, Burger Scholar Sessions, on First We Feast, I think that's Complex Media's First We Feast, which is now heading into its sixth season. In addition, George was the host and co-executive producer of Travel Channel's Burgerland, which is based on his book, Hamburger America. And his newest project? He is about to open a restaurant on what else? The Hamburger in downtown Soho. So we in New York City, so we have something really big to look forward to there. Welcome, George. Thanks for having me. How did all how how did the whole hamburger mania come about with you? The mania it has become manic. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, it really started about twenty two years ago. Twenty two years ago. Look at listen to that. <laughs> twenty two years ago, when I made a film called Hamburger America. That's really when it began, and it wasn't mania at all back then. It was simply I was trying to find uh, great hamburger stories to put in a, in a documentary film. Uh, back then, I was a, a director of photography, shooting TV commercials and movies and that sort of thing. I would travel around and I would see these, you know, the, these great America stories based on uh, the hamburger. And I would bring a camera with me, separate from my jobs I was doing, go off on the road and on my own, and, and find stories and bring them back to New York and edit them into. I finally ended edited after two years into a film called Hamburger America. That's sort of where it began. <laughs> mm. And so that was. I mean, it wasn't just that you loved hamburgers so much. Did you come to love them more than you did before, or was it you know chicken and the egg? Oh, absolutely, Abs- no, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I was only looking for a film subject. I wasn't looking for, I wasn't looking to be anything hamburger um, uh, related at all, or, or hamburger expert by any means. I was simply just trying to find a great hamburger, trying to find a good subject, and the hamburger uh, presented the best um, the best option for that. I mean, I, and I realized when I was done with the film uh, that it was equally about the people who make hamburgers as in the hamburger. Uh, stories themselves, mm-hmm. uh, and it was uh, the New York Times pointed that out right away. They said it's a they called it an undidactic uh, <laughs> a love letter to the um, to the American hamburger uh, and the people who make them. Uh, so it, we, it definitely was equally about both. Yeah, well, that I mean that's interesting because that's the whole cultural part of I think America is it they say America's love affair with the hamburger. I mean it's it's a it's really a hands on project and many mom and pop shops, but then also, of course, we have, you know, the big golden arches and, uh, and, you know, the other, the other big names of, of chains and joints that, that have, um, as I said, in, you know, in my intro made their fortune off of this treat. Well, tell, tell us a little bit about the history. I know you were recently interviewed by USA Today and, you gave a nice rundown of a history, which is, as I said, also one of many different stories, but they all <laughs> kind of have the same tie in there with them. But what is your take on the history? Well, I mean, there's there's a very, very long history that goes back to the, the Huns and the Tartars in um, the 13th century, or you can start, you know, in Germany. There's a lot of different ways to uh, uh, to tell the story of the history of the hamburger. You tell me where well, you want I to mean, start. <laughs> people, it's like, it was like doing, you know, pizza, which is more American originally than it was Italian. But people, you know, people have been, as you mentioned, you know, for almost millennia, been eating meat between some kind of bread or something. I mean, yeah, right. we could go back. You could do a little brief, uh, well, the tartare, <laughs> we know where that's going. But um, right. 
yeah, okay, shoot to why we have the hamburger and why it's called hamburger. There you go. I'll start with Germany, which would bring us to about the 1800s, turn of the turn of the 18th century, I guess you'd say. Uh, it was a dish made from minced raw beef. Very straightforward. Uh, it was at that time cooked. Before that, uh, it was not cooked. It was it was it was a tartare steak, basically, uh, which was not, by the way, not not a French invention. People like to think that they put the e on the end and made it French. It actually came from the Tartars, mm-hmm. uh, which the, the from the Russian steppes in the northern parts of what's what's now Russia. Uh, it came from there through the Baltic Sea, and and by way of of uh, fishing vessels. Ended up uh, in the port of Hamburg because the Hamburg is a port. You see where I'm going with this. <laughs> Pretty straightforward. Um, at at some point, uh, there was a mass exodus. Uh, I mean, there was obviously there was there was people, people leaving Germans leaving uh, Germany for for uh, for the New World for America, and they would have to leave out of the port of Hamburg. Uh, and this is important because at this point there was this chopped uh, tartar beef that was now being cooked. Uh, it was cooked usually chopped, cooked somehow, usually in a pan. Uh, and then served with um, with onions and some gravy, and that was it. And uh, that was called – I mean, that was actually called a frikadellen or a frikadelle in Germany. But by the time it got to the U.S., it was referred to as a Hamburg steak. And that's because if you were trying to uh, – if, if you were seeking passage to the, to, the, to the New World, to the U.S., uh, and you were trying to eat inexpensively, you would likely eat frikadelle. Because uh, it was it was you know nutritious and it was inexpensive, and sometimes you have to wait for months for passage to the to the U.S. So you'd eat this you know this steak in the style of Hamburg, <laughs> um, mm. and by the time people arrived in the U.S., they found that the Germans that preceded them also brought with them you know the Hamburg steak, uh, and that's that's how, basically how it got to New York City. Huh. And then they got it, things changed once it came to America. Things changed, right? That's right. It, well, I mean, think about it. It was actually an ethnic food back then. Um, it's our it's our, our national heritage now, but 150 years ago, it was unquestionably it was it was an ethnic German food that came over with immigrants. I do recall in in you know reviewing the history a little bit that there was an, a reference to a Hamburg sausage, which was probably the Hamburg steak um, by Hannah Glass in a, in her cookbook, her early cookbook from 1763. So. This, you're right, the steak, this Hamburg concoction or steak was around for a while. Yeah. Uh, the, the frikadellen or the frikadelle was called in Germany. And they still make it. <laughs> it's just the, the, the Hamburg itself, the hamburger has, has eclipsed the frikadellen, I think. Um, but it's still served. You can still find you know, a, a Salisbury steak, which is very similar. Uh, it's, right. You have to eat it with a knife and a fork. It's served on a plate with gravy and, and there's some stuff inside to make it, uh, make it not meatloaf, <laughs> but make it more like mm-hmm. a hamburger. But the real history of the hamburger and the reason we like to think of it as an American food was what happened once the Hamburg steak arrived uh, in, the, in the U.S. And that's because uh, at some point, and we're not totally sure, the history is very, very nebulous here, but I do know after doing tons of research, it likely started as a portable food at state fairs somewhere in the Midwest. And there are about six or seven or eight or nine somewhere in there claims to the invention of the hamburger, but unfortunately, all those claims were from state fair operators, which were transient, and there, there was no real history. I mean, you're talking about an ethnic food; nobody was writing stories about them like we do today, for example. Back then, an ethnic food was seen as nothing but you know food sustenance, and I don't know what that thing is. It seems strange to me, but it took off because it was so it was so incredibly tasty, obviously. Uh, and I'm sure that if you were at a state fair and you were looking at farm equipment and you're 
purchasing livestock and you had to go to the, I mean, what would have been back then a food court, you would see things like the hot dog. And the hot dog was at 1870 was when it actually came to the US was a portable food. It was served on bread. So I imagine mm-hmm. if you're a state fair operator and you're watching a hot dog go by and you're still serving the Hamburg steak on a plate, I mean, your first thought was, how do we get this thing portable? And that's probably <laughs> where it happened at state fairs. It makes sense to me, <laughs> certainly. I mean, portable <laughs> food. I mean, that's what so many th- so many things came about when, you know, whether it was wartime and, and the soldiers needed portable food or people going to the fair needing needing portable food, right? And that that certainly makes a lot of sense. Um, and then, of course, from there, whew, it took off. And from there, it uh, took off. At one point, there was a little bit of a bump in the road. Um, a little bit. Uh, Upton Sinclair wrote his scathing uh, novel, yeah. uh, The Jungle. And at that point, the hamburger really hadn't been seen as anything special at all. It was just seen as something you ate at the fair because you were you were hungry. Um, the, the questionable nature of, of its origins uh, it really kept it away from most people who were eating. I th- I'm assuming people who were going to state fairs, you know, they'd be taking a risk by eating a hamburger, but they knew it was going to be tasty. Uh, back then, there was no there was no FDA. There was no real real uh, control over what was happening in the in the in the safety of food um, in the, before the turn of the century, before 1900. Uh, and then, of course, Upton Sinclair wrote his book in the in, I think in the first first decade of the 1900s, for the first decade of the 20th century. And from at that point, it was people really then avoided. Uh, we we know that um, the story is all about uh, the. Um, the, the, the questionable practices of meatpacking in Chicago specifically, and it highlighted uh, ground beef. And uh, that, that scared everybody off meat, uh, ground beef sp- specifically right away. Um, if you think about um, what, who, who would then eat a hamburger after that, it would have been people who worked in factories, wage earners, blue collar uh, uh, workers, where they had no problem walking out of their factory and eating a hamburger. They knew it was tasted great. They knew that it was probably fresh. They didn't care. It tasted great. Uh, but at some point, I'll tell you exactly when it was, though, there was a guy uh, named Walt Anderson who was making burgers uh, in Wichita. Um, and he opened up a small stand. It was a very tiny uh, shoe uh, shoe repair shop, a, a small shack. And he knew that people liked these hamburgers, so he started making more of them. And he ended up um, partnering with another guy named Billy Ingram, and the two of them opened up what we know now know as White Castle. And right. it really was White Castle. They were the first to clean up the hamburger's image and make it something that people, everybody would love. And what Billy Ingram noticed, Billy Ingram was, was the money guy behind the business in the very beginning in 1920. And what he noticed was there were people who were pulling up in limousines around the corner and having their, what they called their boys, as he called it, their boys run around the corner and grab burgers and come back to the limo and go to the, the wealthy side of town. So he knew right away that it wasn't just the wage earners who were eating these burgers, it was everybody. And his job with Walt Anderson was to clean up the image. So they started to grind fresh beef. And they actually, I think at one point, they were actually grinding in the restaurant. Um, they, they expanded very quickly. And it, huh. everything changed after that. Yeah. Oh, that's – listen, it, it's sort of like nothing's changed. You hear those stories going on about uh, – well, food is a great equalizer, number one. But, Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, well, I mentioned pizza earlier on. But, you know, between these fast foods – Everyone just loves loves the taste, and they don't think about the fact that it's you know a portable a portable food, or you know who's making it or how it's made. But that certainly um, on the heels of Upton Sinclair's expose, that certainly was was an important 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 venture for him to make uh, for White Castle. And that that makes a lot of sense. And again, the fact that it you know this the whole 
the way that the, the burger evolved is it's truly an American food. I mean, it's an American invention. We, a lot of things we've adopted from other cultures and made it popular in America. But this was really, you know, we put the bread, we put the buns on either side of it. So <laughs> this <laughs> is true. That. We did, we did make it. We did. We do own it now at this point. <laughs> For yeah, sure. yeah. Yeah. We do. And, uh, it's not, I'm not happy about seeing uh, a lot of these chain restaurants open abroad. Um, but, you know, we should keep things separate maybe as far as food, it makes it more interesting that way. You know, I don't want to travel true. a couple thousand miles just to have uh, the same old hamburger, you know. <laughs> this is true. I mean, this is well that that's that's a business model. So we we can't knock the business model. That's that's what they do. But the downside that is would. that I mean, what we really have to appreciate uh and understand is that when those fast food models went out into the world and people started to see that as an American product, unfortunately, it was it was not the best version. It was not our best foot forward, put it that way. It was not the mm. way that we really should be showing America what a hamburger could be. I'll, I'll tell you why. This is a perfect example. Something I like to call the great White Castle paradox is that today White Castle is – we know what White Castle is. It's, it's you know the same thing as the other big guys. They have expanded. Uh, the, the product itself is a little bit watered down because it's, it's a large chain. They can't do anything about that. They could probably, but it would be too, too much too expensive. But if you go back to the beginning of, of White Castle when they were just smashing little balls of beef on a, on a, on a flat top or actually in a pan back then and a pan that collected grease. And it tastes, that's why it tasted great. It was very simple. It was made by hand. It was made by somebody. Not a, you know, it wasn't wasn't it wasn't machine patted beef beef and everything that most of these fast food chains have become. But White Castle, uh, at some point, they they did try to adapt to uh, to the uh, the wartime efforts and uh, the, the the Great Depression, and they had to change their they had to change their business practices, which meant freezing beef and that sort of thing. But what people don't realize, and I want people to actually appreciate, is that and this is the great paradox: is that when White Castle first opened, everybody wanted to copy them. That was a big thing to copy them and do the make the exact same burger they were making. This tiny little little sliders that were smashed flat and served with some onions and served simply on a bun. The great thing is that there are so many copies out there that some today still remain. They're still out there. And what those places are still making today, almost 100 years later, I mean, literally, actually, more than 100 years later, um, oh, yeah, is the same burger more. they used to make. <laughs> those are the great primary source White Castle hamburger exists in a, a bunch of these small slider places in America. That, and to me, that's absolutely fascinating. I, I think it is too. And I mean, they even got uh, you know Fran, or, uh, into the business model of cooking that people wanted them and they weren't near a white castle you could buy them in the freezer compartment you know of the grocery right. store <laughs> get boxes of them they never taste the same you know you got to have them a little greasier right there from white castle <laughs> it was exactly was, yeah. yeah but yeah they, definitely over 100 years ago i mean white castle dates to well, like, like 1916 i think or something like that it's the like technically 1919 well 1919 1920 yeah wow. to be, just to be exact <laughs> okay I like exactness. Yes, that's good. Thank you. <laughs> well, you know, it's people are, and especially restaurants and chains are always trying to to change the hamburger. They're always trying to you know add something different and something new. And but is it still a hamburger? Well, I guess it is. What's your take on that? Well, the hamburger needs to be defined as only one thing: chopped beef, and I mean beef, patted. And cooked somehow and served on bread. That's it. Nothing else. There's, there's no other toppings make it more of a hamburger or less of a hamburger. Uh, if you if there's not beef, it's I'm sorry, it's not a hamburger. It becomes a, you know what's a crab cake? It's a cake. You know, a tuna burger is not a burger. 
It's a sandwich at that point. <laughs> so to me, it, ha- it can only be defined as one thing. That's it. Uh, well, what about the cheeseburger? Ah, that's a different thing. That's, that's a cheeseburger. <laughs> oh, close to your heart. Yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the cheeseburger, uh, a, l- a late breaking invention, 20, uh, tw- many years after the hamburger was technically invented in America. I mean, this, the cheeseburger didn't come around until probably a good 40 or almost 50 years after the hamburger was invented. As far as we know, we have, we have menus that uh, go back to the early mid 1920s in Los Angeles that, uh, that obviously list a cheeseburger. Uh, but not something that anybody thought of before. And it's funny, even if sometimes if you walk into an old time, uh, you know, old school restaurant, you will see old timers eating uh, regular hamburgers with no cheese because they think the cheese are, cheese is for kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, a lot of kids out there that are pretty big. <laughs> they all love cheeseburgers. That's true. Um, I must be a kid but, then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I knew it was close to your heart. I, I do know yeah. that you oh, – yeah. You know, it's a perfect cheeseburger. It's, but I'll tell you this though, this is very important, is that I might, you know, I believe in the classics and I do I do understand that the cheeseburger was a late, a late breaking thing and it, you know it happened 50 years after the hamburger was technically invented. So my license plate on my car is HMBRGR. And I'll have you know that the CHZ BRGR was available and I chose hamburger. Oh. <laughs> Oh, there's a story that goes along with that too. And I don't remember what that, some kid, some young kid decided to put cheese on the burger or something. I don't know. No, it's, yeah, it, it was the, actually the, the, the guy that opened, the guy that started Bob's Big Boy was technically the guy that yeah. invented the cheeseburger, uh, but he was only a teenager. He did it at, at his, um, at the restaurant that he started working at called The Right Spot in Pasadena. And the story was, and this, I don't totally believe this, but it's a great story. <laughs> Apparently he burned one side of a, a burger patty, cooked, overcooked it, and to cover it up, he put a piece of cheese on it to cover up the burn part. <laughs> uh, well, that's uh, that's kind of goes into your what your one of your things is it's crunchy. I was thinking, where does the crunchy come in from? Maybe <laughs> it's right. that burn, that burn crispy crunchy edge. The burn right. crispy, right. The other story <laughs> I've heard is that there's a, uh, a a local Pasadena high school orchestra walked into the right spot and asked for something different. And Lionel Sternberg put, who's, that was the kid's name, I think, he uh, he put cheese on the burger. So I, this, who knows? I mean, this, this, yeah, I've heard a lot yeah. of different stories. Right. Well, that you know, just like the the creation of the of the hamburger to start, there are everyone's got a story, right? Everybody, no, no, this Absolutely. is how it started. You know, but that's okay. Yeah. That's good because stories stories are what you know makes life interesting and drives drives uh, us to to be more creative. Well, Absolutely. you know, we're going to take we're going to take a short break because when we come back, I'm going to talk with you during the break. We talk about some of the good different variations and your cross-country trip tasting all of these state specials. So hang on. When we come back, we'll talk more about the hamburger. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. 
Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with George Motes, the burger scholar. And that's a, I, I love that you have that name. I mean, and then you adopted it for your, who came, who came first? Your, the designated scholar or the name of your show, the Burger Scholar mm-hmm. Sessions? It happened at the same time. And they did, actually, the, the yeah. network didn't tell me they were doing that. It was, it was a complete fluke. Uh, hmm. they, I, was on a, I was on a different show of theirs um, for First We Feast. And uh, the, the episode that I was on aired while I was literally in the air flying to Brazil. And I landed and my phone blew up with text saying, now, oh, now you call yourself the Burger Scholar. Ha ha. What is going on here? I had no idea. And my lower third title on the screen was George Moat's Burger Scholar. So I, now I've, I'm okay with that. I, I'm, I'll stick with that. Yeah. I think it's a good designation. I mean, somebody has to be the authority. We got, you know, one person to go to, you got to, you know, whittle it down. So if you, <laughs> if you're the guy, then you're a scholar. Okay. Um, and you have spent plenty of time studying it, not just uh, presuming to know what it is, I'm sure. Right. You uh, took a, a trip um, across country and tasted a lot of different hamburgers because every state has to put their mark on it, right? So everyone and people in different parts of the country like their food a little different. What what did you discover? What were What was the most unusual combination that you came across unusual well i mean i what i did discover right away was that regional diversity abounds in america when it comes to the hamburger that there's not just one type of american hamburger you know, we, we have this sense in the in the coastal cities you know in los angeles san francisco uh, new york city obviously chicago even chicago and um in miami that a burger is a burger it's served one way oh let's put some lettuce and tomato on there um that makes it a that makes it a picture perfect burger what you know Unfortunately, that's that's a totally inaccurate uh, assessment of, of the American hamburger because when you get out there, especially in the middle of the country, you find that local tastes uh, predominate, uh, and you have burgers that are based on really what's available locally or what's enjoyed locally. A perfect example would be the Wisconsin Butter Burger, which some people think, oh, wait, so it's a buttered bun, so what? It's a toasted bun. No, 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 no. Uh, in Wisconsin, you, if you go to a real butter burger place. Uh, uh, specifically the place called Solly's Grill in uh, Glendale, Wisconsin, they think of and they use butter as a condiment where you actually take a two or three tablespoon dollop of, of, of um, soft butter and swipe it on the bun. I'm not talking about toasting it. It's, it's an actual condiment. If you're lucky, you get a bite of the burger and the butter is still in its uh, semi-solid state. <laughs> now it's because obviously there's a couple of reasons for that. One is obviously that Wisconsin is the is the dairy state. It's a it's a right. fantastic state for dairy, but also back in the I can't think remember what it was now, but at some point the um, the Wisconsin state uh, government decreed that um, serving margarine in your restaurant in place of butter was illegal. 
<laughs> so it's a, a point of pride in the state. Yeah, so good for them. It makes sense that if you're gonna if you're gonna open a restaurant, you better serve you better serve uh, good old Wisconsin butter, otherwise you might, you might go to jail. It actually was <laughs> punishable by jail time. <laughs> <laughs> you, as you said, the regionality, I mean, is so so predominant is so dominant in in their food choices. And I'm thinking of Wisconsin; they have a lot of interesting and unusual um, foods. And of course, a lot of it ties to, as you said, the dairy, you know, the dairy industry. And a lot of it, of course, is tied to the um, immigrant population that settled in that area of the right. country. But tell me about another one that maybe, what was the most bizarre one that maybe you couldn't even bring yourself to eat? <laughs> well, it's early that? on. You, don't, you might not have to mention the state, but... <laughs> So early on in my study of the hamburger, when I was driving around the country, I realized that there are certain things I said, well, how can someone eat this? I can't eat that. And I realized I really should be able to eat that because you know, they're eating it. This is a great lesson for anyone who wants to really truly appreciate food is that if someone else is eating it, especially if someone else is serving you that food and they put love into it, you know it's, it's, it's going to be fantastic. And if you don't exactly like the taste, you can't quite – you know, ex- explain what you're tasting. It doesn't really matter. I, I, to me, if someone else uh, is making food, I'm going to eat it because they're not going to. They're not trying to give me bad food. They're trying to give me what they love, which is great. Then it's the same thing with the hamburger. You, I would drive around the country and think to myself, "Wait a minute, peanut butter, peanut butter on a burger? <laughs> that sounds insane." But huh. you walk into this restaurant that's unfortunately now gone in Sedalia, Missouri. It's was called the Wheel Inn. Uh, and right in the, I mean, dead center of of uh, the state of Missouri, and the, out there in, in you know state fair country, uh, where they do trade livestock, and you know it's out there. It's very unfamiliar for people who are from the coast. <laughs> uh, and they their burger of choice um, for many many years was something called the Goober Burger, which was a burger that literally had, uh, had it actually did have lettuce, tomato on it, but also peanut butter. Yeah, that would be a little tough. <laughs> <laughs> But I have to tell you, it tasted great. (laughs) It tasted great because think of it as beef satay. I mean, what is beef satay? You know, but but you know, a peanut dipping sauce um, for beef. Uh, Well, what I've seen listed on, I guess, was one of your articles or or the interview, a slug burger. What is a slug burger? I'm conjuring up all kinds of awful things, but. Right. There, there are no slugs in a slug burger, fortunately. Oh, slug burger, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the slug was a nickname that was given because back in the day it was only cost a nickel. And the slang for a nickel back you know, oh, back in the pre yeah. I guess the nineteen twenties was a slug. So that's why they called it a slug burger. Uh, the slug burger also had a very, very interesting history because and that's why I love this story. It's northern, pretty much only northern Mississippi is where this still exists today. And it was a way to extend your meat supply. You could take yesterday's bread, which is now stale and dried out, crumble it, make breadcrumbs out of it, and then put it into your burger beef to extend the supply. And what they what they discovered accidentally was that those breadcrumbs, once they started to collect beef grease and fry on a flat top, uh, became very, very, very tasty. Mm-hmm. And a legend was born. Wow. Okay. Let's hear it for the slug burger. <laughs> No slugs, don't worry. Okay. Uh, Okay. Anything else that, uh, another one that can you? Yeah, another one that threw me off, but I really, I still to this day enjoy it. And I actually make it all the time uh, is something called the Michigan Olive Burger, which exists in the center, uh, center of the state, 
south and and west uh, of, of Michigan. If you go to Detroit, for example, which is on the southeast side of the state, no one's ever heard of it, <laughs> which I find incredible. But if you're in, say, Lansing, which is sort of the epicenter of the of the uh, Michigan Olive Burger, there are places that uh, they take basically take um, cocktail olives. Uh, some with the pimentos inside, some without. They chop it up and throw it on a burger with some mayonnaise. Or you actually make um, – some of them will also make a sort of a salad dressing, which is a combination of uh, vinegar, uh, mayo, and sugar, and blend that with a few chopped green olives, and you have an olive burger. Yeah, I guess it's uh, – it's uh, that doesn't sound – so bad to me. I mean, that's kind of like, yeah, having a Russian dressing or something on top of your burger or, you know, but right. toppings and condiments are, well, they're a big deal for you. I know I've read, you know, a, a lot of your writings on hamburgers, but um, that's really where the, where the variations come in. It's really just the toppings and you can put just about anything on a, you know, on a hamburger. This is, this is true. But to me also in America, uh, it's not so much about the toppings as it is about method. There are a lot of burgers that define themselves regionally just by based on the method they're cooked. <laughs> uh, I mean, you've got uh, steamed, poached, uh, deep fried. You have um, something called the loose meat sandwich, which I find totally fascinating, which technically is not a hamburger because it's it's loose meat. Imagine a sloppy joe without the slop in it. That's why I, like uh-huh. I like to put it. Uh, it's just basically crumbled beef with the grease drained off uh, and some seasoning or usually uh, just salt added and served on a hamburger bun with mustard pickle onion. And it has the flavor of a hamburger without being a formed patty. So technically it's in the hamburger family, but that's, that's, a, that's only pretty much exists in Iowa and some of the surrounding states. You can't really find it outside of that area of the country. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds so good. to me, it's a me- method is important. Method is important. Toppings are important too. Uh, because, uh, you know, obviously a burger can be defined by its toppings. Too many toppings ruins the burger, which we can get into that if you want. But uh, to me, uh, a lot of times you, you, you'll find, you know, even toppings become regional. Um, i trying to think of some good examples. Oh, for example, the, the green chili cheeseburger. You ask for a, a, a burger in, in uh, New Mexico, they're going to say, you know, you, I'm, I'm assuming you want a green chili, green chili burger or a green chili cheeseburger. That's a very specific topping in the state of New Mexico. Hmm. So you have to be aware of the state specialty before you go in and just order a hamburger, right? That, that's that's <laughs> where I come in. Know. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Well, read the book and find out, folks, right? Yeah. It's true. Well, um, it's it's all fascinating, I, and I, I like it all. And, and there's also, as you say, the way it's cooked. And uh, we are, as we record this, we're into summertime now with lots of holidays coming up, and people are going to fire up the grills. And what's the first thing I think of is a hamburger. And you're saying, well, it's maybe not the best way to cook a hamburger. Uh, it's a great way to cook a hamburger. Sometimes it's not the easiest way. That's what I like to tell yeah. people is that there's, ah. there's a couple of rules. There are basically more rules uh, to cooking a hamburger on a flame grill than there are any other way. A uh, flame grill is the most difficult way to make a hamburger, period. And people think they can go out in the backyard, fire up the grill, make a burger. If they've done it a bunch of times, they're gonna, they'll be able to make magic. But if you if you try if you don't know what you're doing, you've only done it a few times, and you change the thickness of your patty, change the type of beef you're using, it will be more affected immediately by a flame grill. Um, if you don't know what you're doing, so I always tell people my number one piece of advice is to put the drink down. <laughs> for starters, yeah, yeah. I'm not a, I'm not a teetotaler by any stretch, but I do tell people if you want to make magic, you're only about ten minutes. You know, get your stuff ready, get it all ready. You want to impress the family, impress your friends, just. Just focus on the on the cooking for ten minutes, and then celebrate with a drink, as opposed to drowning your sorrows in it because you screwed up. So, I mean, that's very important to focus on the on what you're doing. Uh, but uh, think about it: a flame grill. 
uh, this, there's heat everywhere. This, it's, it's cold in spots. It's unbelievably hot in spots, depending on where you put your coals. If you're using charcoal, if you don't have, if you're using a, a flame grill, uh, I'm sorry, a propane grill, it's much easier. But at the same time, those are kind of un- underpowered sometimes for what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, timing is very difficult based on how thick the burger is. There's a lot of different science, um, ru- scientific rules going on there that you can make a mistake uh, with pretty quickly. True. That's true. Uh, all right. I'm going to ask you then, what's your perfect burger? Ooh. Well, to me, a perfect burger has to have uh, fresh ground beef. It has to have a classic white squishy bun. A potato roll is a great idea. Great place to start. Um, but not necessarily. It could be any kind of bread, really. But to me, it has to start with fresh ground beef. Uh, I think that onions, um, onions are probably, probably the original condiment. Before there was mustard, ketchup, anything else, you know, olives and truffle oil, whatever, whatever you have. Uh, the first real condiment, I believe, was or a flavor enhancer um, added to the, the burger was onions. So mm-hmm. I think onions, uh, are, to me, are, are so important. And of course, I'm a fan of uh, American cheese. So to me, if you have that combination of beef, onions, and a white squishy bun, and nothing more than just a little bit of cheese, American cheese, you're, you're doing great. All right, to squish the burger or not squish the burger as you're finishing the cooking, <laughs> or smashed burger as we like to say, right? Well, I mean, there's two different uh, this two different schools of thought there. One is that when you smash a burger, you're pushing all the juices out of it. Which is, this is mm-hmm. not true. When oh. you smash a burger, the juices haven't even actually formed yet because the the juice that, that people are talking about is the rendered beef fat that exists inside of a burger patty. Um, what if you smash a burger at the at the onset of cooking? There is literally no no rendered fat to 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 have have escape at all. So therefore, once you smash a burger, you're really just doing it because it's the traditional American way to get the burger to be the size of the bun and also to cook faster by making it thin. Uh, the second school of thought is that you know, you 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 obviously don't want to smash a large patty at the end because you will then actually push all those juices out of the burger and render your burger dry and tasteless. Very, very easy to do once you've smashed a burger at the end. Okay. That, and what, what about patties? Thin patties, thick patties, double patties? Again, I'm a steward to history. My job is to look at the burger and decide, if it's, is it a smash burger? Is it a thin patty? Is it a thick patty? Is it loose meat patty? What, what, what's going on here? And try to recreate all of those burgers, especially we do it on the show, on Burger Scholar Sessions. And, and you should know that when, we, when you watch the show, if you do watch the show, that all those burgers we've made, uh, we did with historical accuracy. Because I wanted to make sure people could look at that and say, oh, yeah, that's exactly that's, – that's, that's the method. That's the thing I saw when I went there last time or whatever. Um, mm. I want to make sure we get that right. So to me, it really depends on you – know, the thickness of the patty truly depends on you know, what burger we're talking about making. And I'm telling you right now, they're all different. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. I mean – and it's – and you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? I mean if you, you, you make it the way you like it and that's that, – it's still a hamburger no matter right. what. Well – let me talk about, let me let you talk about your new project, the restaurant called, of course, Hamburger America. And uh, you had said that it'll evoke sensations of dining in the golden age of American hamburger joints. And that stepping into Hamburger America is a step back more than 100 years. You're walking into an authentic piece of hamburger history, a time capsule, and a love letter to one of America's favorite foods. Nicely put. But tell me what 
Expand, expand on that and tell me, okay, what do you really mean? What I like to say is that when you walk into our future restaurant, we have you. We've got you. We've got your back. If you have any question about hamburger history, I've got it. I'll be right behind the griddle. I'm able to answer any question. Walking to my restaurant is like a big warm hug. You immediately identify that you are in a place that's going that, that feels great. It's going to taste great. It's going to smell great. It's going to sound great. We even talked about having all paper products on the on the on the counters. And then I realized that um, that you know we there, we needed to have that sound element of the of the the forks and spoons and plates, uh, you know, ceramic plates going into the bus bin. That will become part of the evocative sound of the restaurant. So it, it'll actually feel. It'll feel um, it'll feel it'll feel authentic. It'll feel very familiar to anybody who has ever been in a real luncheonette or a diner. The difference, though, is that when you walk into our place, we are going to have uh, burgers that are that are from hamburger history, that are from actually from Hamburger America, from my book. Uh, we're going to bring in a, a, a what I call my hamburger heroes once a month, and we're going to we're going to have them in for a big PR weekend, and we're going to make that burger that they make from their region in America, and then keep it on the menu for the entire month. That's the plan. Uh, we're also going to have oh. other classic burgers on the menu as well. Mm -hmm. Sounds like fun. I can't wait. So this is something to look forward to, folks. And this will take me a look at the end of the summer, beginning of fall. We'll see. And if you're in New York City, you can check it out. And it's going to be called, it is called already, there's a sign on the, on the window, Hamburger America. And that also goes for George's books, Hamburger America. And no, that's the show. Um, okay. Hamburger America was... The first book? No, Hamburger America was the documentary oh, film. film. That was the film. That was the documentary, yeah. right? Okay, that was the original one. Yeah, then it, then it became. Right. Uh, sorry, <laughs> it became Hamburger America: The Guidebook, which is now is in its uh, third um, third edition, third revised edition. Okay, and so then you could read all about the Americas, and then even the one with the state by state guide, you could read all about the different regional specialties in the Hamburger America state by state guide, and then you came out with. The Great American Burger Book. That one is in the second printing, right? That just was just released. Right. That so, just came out. And actually, on the day that we released that, I've signed contracts for Hamburger America, the fourth edition, which comes out in 2025. Oh, so this is just the new book, the, the Great American Burger Book. So you can learn to cook these burgers. And and then also Burger Scholar Sessions. You're all over the place, George. I can, it's hard to keep it straight here. Okay. And um, Burger Scholar Sessions is starting in sixth season? Uh, yeah, well, we've actually shifted a bit there, so it's hard to talk about that one. Um, okay. They, we right, may be doing a different – yeah, it's a different show happening. We're also maybe – this is off the record. We may be doing a, another larger show. I can actually mention that. Uh, Burger Scholar Sessions is probably going to be evolving into a larger road show. At some point, we're working on that right now. Okay, go around taste burgers all over the country. I see, I got it. Oh, the world! We're talking about it's, it's going to become an oh, international show. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, we are celebrating the American burger, and I think you've done just a fantastic job in in uh, you know raising the bar on on people thinking about and how they cook and how they how they uh, approach the hamburger because it, it truly is a special American treat and I don't care how you like it with mustard or ketchup or mustard and ketchup. I know you don't like the ketchup end of it um, but, or right. just, or just onions or just cheese. It's, it's going to be good. It'll, it'll all be good. And I thank you for joining. I can't wait for the restaurant and all the different books. And so whatever's on your grill this summer, 
if you're going to grill it. Um, although I do think hamburgers taste better still in my good old cast iron pan with lots I of agree. Well, put your put your cast iron pan in the grill. I mean, you know, that's, that's can, one of the best ways yeah. to do it. Yep. <laughs> ah, okay. All right. We got it. Well, George, thank you so much for sharing all this information with me. It has been a pleasure. It's been your well, great guest. Me. You're just full of information, full of history. And I love it. Love it. Thank and you. Again, can't wait for the restaurant to open. Can't wait. Okay. George Moe. Me too. Folks. Okay. Um, And I want to thank all of you for listening to another Taste of the Past. Taste of the Past is brought to you by Heritage Radio Network. We are a listener-supported network. If you visit us at heritageradionetwork.org, you'll see a beating heart in the upper right corner, and you can click on that heart and give us a little love, make a little donation, and we will thank you very much for that. Keep us on the air. And my engineer today is Liam Werner. Thank you, Liam. And join us again for another Taste of the Past. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe 